Welcome to the For the Win podcast. I'm Ted Berg. Now, I believe in my third episode since taking over for the estimable but departed Nate Scott. And because I'm uh, talking about things I know for now, I'm hoping to talk some baseball. Uh, I'm going to do a Q&A later in the show with my producer, Hamel Javeri. But right now, I want to bring on a guest I'm excited to talk to, a guy I know and also a writer for CBS Sports and SI, the host of the Jonah Carey podcast on the Nerdist Network, and also the host of the Jonah Carey show every Friday at 2.30 p.m. on CBS Sports. It's Jonah Carey. It would be you who hosts the Jonah Carey show. It'd be really weird if it was like Nina Kimes is the host of the Jonah Carey show. Like, something like that. I'd just be like, no, that's not accurate at all. It's not Bomani Jones. Like, definitely not. It might be a good show. Oh, dude, Bomani and Mina are two of my favorite people in the industry. No question about it. Probably a much better show. But, you know, it is what it is. You could just send them topics that you want to discuss and have them discuss it. And it will be like the Jonah Carey. You, like, they can have a photo of you in the background and talk about all of Jonah Carey's preferred discussion topics. Ah, but can they do the hybrid Seth Rogen Kermit the Frog voice? That's the big question. That is a uh, that is <laughs> that that's uh, I I think I think you're selling yourself a little bit short. Oh, uh, I don't mind. It's it's cool. It's yeah. A, yeah, I mean you know it's not it's not horribly it's not horribly far off. Uh, there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely a, I've definitely picked up a, a Seth Rogen ish vibe yeah. at least in the voice. I get that a lot. I get that a lot. Ray Romano a little bit too, depending on. Uh... Demographic. Um, well, so I'm I'm a I'm a sports writer, and I'm from Long Island. So, like, when you reference being a baseball writer to your family members on all, Long Island, they're all like, "Ah, oh, just like everyone loves Raymond." And then you gotta <laughs> explain all the ways in which it's it's not like that. Um, yeah, but whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, I'm I'm bringing you on not to just talk about the things you do, which are which are varied and uh, impressive, and and which there are many of, but. Uh, specifically, one thing you've done, and and um, I think something you know people associate you with, and something you identify with very much, is as a uh, as the author of Up and Up, Up Up and Away, a book about the Montreal Expos, and you know I think one of the internet's foremost former Expos fans and Expos uh, experts, mm-hmm. which is a tough thing to say, and mm-hmm. um, it's it's Hall of Fame voting time, and you have a horse in this race. Yeah, I do. Uh, well, I mean, there's actually this is the exposiest ballot of all time, right? Larry Walker's on there, uh, Vladimir Guerrero's on there. Both those guys played significant seasons in Montreal. Heck, Lee Smith is a former Expo. Orlando Cabrera. I mean, we could go down the list. Uh, but the guy who uh, I'm really advocating for is Tim Raines. Raines, his rookie season, I was six that year, and so I kind of came of age as Raines came of age, I guess. And uh, became my favorite player, you know, just an electrifying kind of guy. I love the speed game. I was a big Ricky Henderson fan, too, even though he wasn't an expo. Uh, and just watching those two, you know, whenever you Henderson would be on TV, which was once a week back then, great. And anytime I could get a chance to see Reigns, I would. And, uh, you know, there's a confluence going on here because not only was he this electrifying player and my favorite player on my favorite team, but he happens to be a guy who – by traditional metrics, it wasn't that easy to vote for him for the Hall of Fame. You know, when he first came on the ballot, he got pretty weak support. He was getting about a quarter of the electorate because he didn't have 3,000 hits. He didn't have 500 home runs. Uh, he, ne- he only won one batting title. He never won an MVP. And you're like, okay, well, what's the deal with this guy? And it requires a little bit of effort. You know, you have to understand on-base percentage and the times on base can be just as important as hits. Uh, you know, that stealing bases is very important. That stealing bases at a high success rate is very important. 
uh, that maybe might not have won the MVP, but MVP voting is flawed. And that if you look at the body of work, if you look at a five-year period or 10-year period, he was one of, if not the best player in the National League. We could get to those, some of those specific stats in a minute if you like. But yeah, all of that stuff made it so that people had a tough time with it. So it became, all right, well, I really like this guy. And I'm, I'm kind of a stat head, I guess, when it comes to this industry. Why don't I just take the baton and try to do some things here? N- nothing to do with me or whatever. I don't get any financial benefit or anything like that. It's just, hey, here's this guy. He's really good. Maybe you should consider voting for him. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a precedented thing at this point, right? Uh, Burt Blylevin was yes. a guy who had, you know, a, a really, if you looked on paper, a great Hall of Fame case in many ways. Uh, just a, a guy that, you know, the metrics we now understand to be, you know, those that really dictate what's happening on the field showed Blylevin to be one of the dominant pitchers of his era. No one really saw him that way when he first landed on the Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, and then due to the efforts of, of some people on the internet, uh, Rich Letterer is the, the main guy who comes to mind, Blylevin wound up there. You know, he wound up getting there. And, and so, I, I don't know, it is kind of heartening to know that uh, those of us who, who sort of, you know, toil in, you know, sending stuff out onto the internet and hoping people pay attention, you know, might actually make uh, some progress in that department. And it does seem like Reigns, I don't know, I, I think he's going to get there this year. Yeah, well, and credit to Rich Letterer. You said Bert Blylevin. Uh, Rich was kind of a part-time baseball writer. He was a money manager, actually, in Southern California. I got a chance to meet him, went to a couple of Angels games with him. Good dude, and he just you know took the baton and became very aggressive about Blylevin. And, yeah, I think there's a little bit of that fighting spirit in there. I, I'm probably a little bit more mild-mannered maybe than Rich is. I try to kind of kill people with kindness and say, hey, look, here are these things. Maybe you should consider them and uh, try not to call them a jackass if at all possible, even though I might have my opinions about their level of jackassery. Um, but, yeah, you know, just, just looking at the resume and, and trying to figure it all out, and, uh, it, you know, he has gained a lot of momentum. And, you know, I'll go to some of the specific numbers. that are, This is what the arguments that I tried to use. I sent out a letter to every voter who had not voted for Reigns last year, which is 150 <laughs> people or whatever. <laughs> took, took a while. Took a while. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm pretty mild-mannered about it, but I'm sending letters to everyone's house. <laughs> listen, if you read the letters – they were emails. But if you read the emails, they were all polite, you know, was uh, – Thanks for your voting or whatever. And, and you can, you know, here are some things to consider it. And I, all above board. And the big things that I pointed out, there are three basically trains here. One was this idea of hits. You know, Tony Gwynn sails into the Hall of Fame with 97 plus percent of the vote. Um, and Tim Raines, by value, just in terms of how much they meant to their teams, he was basically the same player as Tony Gwynn. It's just that Gwynn got a lot more hits and not as many walks, and Reigns had still had a lot of hits. He had 2,605 hits, but he walked 1,330 times. He actually reached base more times than Tony Gwynn did. And what I try to impress on people is, you know, listen, if we, we, since Little League we've been saying a walk is as good as a hit, and if he had 400 more bunt singles instead of walks, he'd be in the Hall of Fame. So why are we parsing this argument? And, in fact, Reigns has reached base more times than Gwynn, Lou Brock, Roberto Clemente, uh, Roberto Alomar, Eddie Matthews, Harmon Killebrew, Mike Schmidt, like these all-time phenomenal greats who were no-brainer Hall of Famers. So what are you waiting for with Reigns? That was one. Another one, and to me, that's enough of a Hall of Fame case by itself, by the way. But then the second thing you go to is what did Reigns do on the base paths? And you look at that, and he was one of only five players in uh, Major League history to steal 800 or more bases. The other four are all in the Hall of Fame. 
and he stole bases at a more higher success rate than any of those dudes. He has the highest success rate of any player in baseball history with more than 400 attempts. So here was a guy who not only was just an absolute demon and just terrified everybody in the base paths, but he would never get caught. That was a big thing too. And the third thing was this, you know, this MVP thing. And I, yeah, this always bugged me because it, repeating the uh, the sins of your forefathers doesn't really make much sense to me. If people didn't recognize Reigns' talent before, you don't affirm that 30 years later. And if you go to wins above replacement, I understand that wins above replacement is not everybody's cup of tea. And, you know, it's a little bit of an esoteric formula. But the basic idea is you take offense, you take defense, you take base running, you put a guy together. 83 to 87, which is Reigns' prime, is five best seasons, arguably. The best player in the National League was not Andre Dawson or Ozzie Smith or Gary Carter or Keith Hernandez or Ryan Sandberg or any of those dudes who were all, Dale Murphy, all great. It was Tim Raines, who's the best player for half a decade. And if you make it 81 through 1990, which is the entire 80s, basically, the first 10 years, first decade of Raines' career, the best player in the National League was not Andre Dawson or Keith Hernandez or Ozzie Smith or Ryan Sandberg or Dale Murphy or Gary Carter or any of those dudes. It was Tim Raines. Tim Raines was the best player in the National League for a decade. <laughs> a decade, Ted Bird. I think once you get to that point and you can wrap your, heart, your, your mind around that, it's hard to argue otherwise. Now we're just parsing details and, and penalizing him because in 2001 he had lupus and was playing with Oakland and was not a good player anymore. That is completely irrelevant. He was a fantastic player and deserving all of it. Well, you're preaching to the choir because uh, we both, we're both in the same situation in that we're BBWAA members, not yet eligible to yep. vote for the Hall of Fame. Uh, we both put on put fake ballots uh, online for the sake of it because it's a fun thing to do, and we had identical fake yeah. ballots. So, so we're, of, we're of like mind here, but the thing I struggle with and and this is a bigger picture question because I, and I think we're we're probably on the same page here too uh, because it doesn't really make all that much sense to me is uh, you know obviously it's it, you care to see Tim Raines in the Hall of Fame uh, I I assume you know because you're you're on your fake ballot you've got Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens you don't feel that the Hall of Fame yet adequately represents the the full spate of the best players uh, in baseball history and certainly of our lifetimes. Why do you still care about the Hall of Fame? Because I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I know I do, but I don't know why. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. It's a lot of it has to do with Tim Raines. I, I think that whatever happens, this is his last year on the ballot. We get to next year. I honestly believe that Edgar Martinez and Larry Walker and Mike Messina, even our pal Kurt Schilling, I think that these undervalued candidates deserve to get in. And I have some amount of, it's nice to see these guys recognize, you know, that this is what they did. History should reflect that. But I think a lot of it is visceral. And, and, and people have asked me, uh, what are you going to do? You know, right. One way or another, this is it for Reigns. You know, he's either getting in or not. And are you going to campaign for Edgar Martinez or Mike Messina? And my reply is, I will do it if there's like a charitable tie-in, you know, I don't know how that works, but if <laughs> my, no, I'm hundred percent serious. Like, <sighs> I'm hesitant. I don't want to take credit for Reigns, but I definitely put some information in front of people and they were able to make their own decisions and maybe that possibly might have helped. It wouldn't bother me to help Edgar Martinez or whatever, but I have to make choices about my time. I have children and, and you know, a job and all these other things. If there was some way, there's a charity called Don Arrue. is a cool charity that's based in Montreal. Uh, and they uh, serve the uh, homeless community, especially at-risk and homeless youth in particular. So you're 14, 15, you got kicked out of your house, you're living a tough life, you're living on the margins. They help. They're really cool. I could name you 7,000 other – whatever your favorite charity is. I would like to see this go to some purpose. The thing for Reigns that I'm doing is just because I'm a big Reigns fan, there's, nobody else is benefiting, benefiting it for it. 
or from it as except for rains it would be nice if i'm going to devote this time and effort and energy to something that somebody benefits i don't care not for me but for somebody in the world cosmically because you know if you i think if you step back and, and and look at it yeah it is a little frivolous that some dude who played a bunch of years ago oh is he in the hall of fame or not so at least let's try to make something good out of it that would be my attitude well, I think it's awfully bold and perhaps a little bit selfish of you to put spending time with your kids ahead of Edgar <laughs> Martinez's Hall of Fame case. But, you know, that's obviously a, a discussion for uh, some other podcast, sure. the, the Jonah Ch- Carey Life Choices podcast. <laughs> um, but but I, I think a big part of it to me, and, and I'm sure you've been to Cooperstown, no? Yeah, I've been uh, multiple times. I've been for two inductions, and I went uh, once when there was not induction. So I've been three times. It's super fun. It's like a it's an adore, and and I get that it's it's you know sort of like a Disneyfied thing, right? But it's it's the Disneyfied version of baseball, right? Which is like the thing I love most. And there's this little idyllic town in upstate New York you get to go to and just sort of like bask in the best parts of baseball and baseball history and baseball hats and gear and batting cages and everything else. And I don't know, to me, it's just kind of cool to have that. And, you know, maybe I'm biased because it's accessible to me because it's like a three hour drive from where I live. But I just want to go there for my whole life and know that all of the best baseball players I've ever seen are like there where they deserve to be and have it be like this clean, neat thing that I don't have to spell. I know a lot of people say, well, how do I explain Barry Bonds being in there? How do I explain Roger Clemens being there? To me, it's more frustrating to imagine having to explain Barry Bonds not being in there because it's like a a nice, simple, straightforward thing to say, here are where all of the best baseball players are, except this one guy. Well, and Cap Anson is in the Hall of Fame and Ty Cobb and a bunch of people that were not the best people. And that's, you know, to sit here and try to parse, well, this guy did something that's 5% worse than this guy. Therefore, yeah, I'm I'm in total agreement with you. I would also add, by the way, that both the Hall of Fame and and Cooperstown as a whole – offer more than the dudes who are in the Hall of Fame who have been inducted. If you go to the building, if you actually walk into the museum, the plaque room is at the end. I mean, that is a minuscule portion of this museum. If you want to see cool junk, uh, you know, that from Kurt Flood's career or the Negro Leagues or Satchel Page or Mike Schmidt or whatever, non-Hall of Famers, you want to see, you know, Bartolo Colon's home run ball. That's probably in the Hall of Fame too. Bartolo Colon is... Well, I believe we should make the Hall of Fame. But, you know, most people are not going to believe that. And that's okay. You know, it's a living museum. It's a tribute to everything that's happened in the game's history. Japanese baseball, all kinds of cool stuff. And so you go there and you really soak up the history. And then later you get to the point you see, okay, here's Tris Speaker and Babe Ruth and all these names that you only know by name. And you never got to see them play. So I think it's all part and parcel. And I would also add the Cooperstown is a delightfully charming place. I mean, the Oma Gang Brewery is the truth, man. Like, I know you and I like to get into the, you know, the... Uh, delicious beers it's hard to do better oh my gang is great it's just outside of the main part of town and you could go there and post up and sit on the patio and then go into town and people are super friendly if you happen to go during an induction i went during pedro martinez induction was the most recent one 2015 you know we were shoulder to shoulder with like astros fans who were jazzed about craig bichio that's super cool when do you get to drink with like random astros fans in july <laughs> in the sunshine it's great i really liked it so I think that, as you said, if you're into baseball, if you're into camaraderie and all that stuff, it's really, really fun. And if you want to go during a non-induction weekend, the time, town is very charming. I'm friendly with the mayor of the town, who's actually a baseball author, too. His name is Jeff Katz. Uh, he'll, like, personally show you around, probably. It's just a great 
you know, for a town of 2,000 people, which is, of course, very small, there's more to do in Cooperstown, more culture, more things going on than any town in America that size by a factor of like 100. I think there's also a dollhouse museum somewhere nearby, which I remember. Sure. Yeah, I remember from being a little kid. Like it was like we we would go there for me and like my sister. Like like just like when we would go to a Broadway show and and my parents to do that would have to bring me to like the sports theme restaurant in Times Square. When we would go to Cooperstown for my sister, we would have to go to the dollhouse museum as well. Uh, so you know it's it's out there. Um, but but Brian, glad you brought up Bartola Cologne because it's a nice segue to the other thing I wanted to ask you about. And, and uh, Bartola Cologne is now, uh, barring a, a Maser is Tourist revival, looks like Bartola will be the last Montreal Expo standing in Major League Baseball. Obviously, you've got a, a ton of knowledge about the history of the Montreal Expos. And in recent years, we've seen this a uh, little bit of momentum towards uh, not only expansion in Major League Baseball, but but specifically the idea of returning a team to Montreal. Is that in any way feasible? Is it going to happen? Why isn't it happening? First of all, I have to point out that old friend and former Expos general manager Dan Duquette signed old friend Tomokazu Oka to a minor league deal this offseason. Oka, who was a pretty decent pitcher back in the day, uh, has developed a knuckleball for the last few years. He hasn't pitched in Major League Baseball in a while. But who knows? That's Oka, true. Former yeah. expo. So you can never say never. But Cologne most likely. And Cologne's also never going to retire. He'll be pitching when we're dead. So there awesome. is that. And it's yeah. going to be awesome. Can't wait. And, and, and the Instagram videos of him working out in the offseason. And, and, like, you know, he's got this physique and we laugh at him. Dude is badass. Like, you and I aren't doing any stuff like that no matter uh, no matter what. So there is all that. Yeah, I think, but, it's, I think it's hilarious that, that people, you know, people like us act like we could – Take Bartolo no. Colon in a foot race. I don't no. even think that's true. That guy's a freakishly good athlete. People, it doesn't. He doesn't look like it. He is. Have you seen? Like he's a great fielder. I, I could talk about this for hours. Tell me more about Montreal. <laughs> Well, I'm completely in agreement about Colon. I would say that even if he wasn't an ex-expo. So you know, to your point about could the team come back? Here's what I say. You know, I think that there is a we, we tend to simplify things and we tend to try to come up with easy narratives about literally everything elections sports teams whatever all of it oh well this happened therefore it was complicated in montreal as 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 you could probably guess and it wasn't because there's no baseball fans in montreal in the 80s in the glory days of the team they were drawing two million fans a year which was gigantic that's like four million now they outdrew the yankees in 82 and 83 the new york yankees so yeah and i don't think that's a commonly known thing necessarily they were very much a well-supported team it's not that fans didn't exist it's that the business community was garbage they just had no interest in supporting the team they had an owner named charles bronfman who was the heir to the seagram's fortune and is a one of the richest people in the world he's a billionaire he sold the team in 1991 to a consortium of local owners who didn't give a crap they put forth a couple million dollars each and they said don't bother us ever again well, the problem is that there's inflation and life goes on and you have to improve your stadium and buy players and retain players. And so over and over we get a thing where they're not supporting the team and so they have to let their best players go. And then, of course, the strike in 94 hurt as well. And it was all this ballooning effect that they just never had a good owner. Those guys were not good owners. Jeffrey Loria was not a good owner. Ultimately, the team is sold to MLB, and that's the end of it. You know, we take these things for granted. And I know that if you're like, if you're, you're a New York Mets fan, right, Ted? So you, you, you follow the Mets and you talk about the Mets. You know, the Wilpon thing and Bernie Madoff, that's kind of crappy. It's not great. The Mets should probably have the second largest payroll in Major League Baseball, or at least top five, because they play in freaking New York City, and they don't, and it's frustrating. So you know what? Suboptimal, but you know what? They're still a major league franchise in good standing. They came awfully close to making the World Series pretty darn recently. They're a, they did you know, make the World Series. Team. They made the World Series last year. 
You mean, oh, 2015. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So, sorry. Wow, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. God. Uh, well, Grantland ended, so I'm pretending that the World Series of 2015 didn't happen. That fair was enough, so, fair enough. That was bizarre. But yeah, so they made the World Series, exactly. So that shows what I know. And anyway, so you've got this thing where they're a real major league franchise. They might have flawed owners, but at least they have owners. And, and you know, the team then didn't have it. So what you need to happen now, the stadium is not a cause, it's a symptom. If you have good owners, they would build a stadium. If you have good owners, fans will show up. If you have good owners, they will get a TV contract. It's just that. Is there momentum toward good ownership? Yes, potentially. There's a media giant called Bell. Bell is like if AT&T and ESPN had a baby. They're a telecommunications giant. They're also a broadcasting giant. So they might step in and become a majority investor. If they, along with you know parties here and there, were able to put together real money, then it's certainly possible that a team could come back. The purchase price for a team, be it relocation or expansion, when you take into account a new stadium – Acquiring a franchise and also the Canadian exchange rate, which sucks right now, is like $2 billion Canadian, billion with a B. So it's a large challenge. Even a large company like Bell, there's going to be a lot at stake. But there is some momentum. It's all behind the scenes. It's not heavily reported. But there is some possibility. But it's not going to happen today or tomorrow or five years from now. You're probably talking a decade or more. And I don't think it's going to be relocation. I don't think Tampa Bay or Oakland is going to be the thing that's going to happen. I think it's going to be expansion. Because this is the, since expansion started in the 60s, this is by far the longest we've gone between rounds of expansion. It's going to be almost two decades now. And we're at the point where we've got 30 teams with uneven leagues. Put Montreal in. Put Mexico City or any other city you're in. Get to an even 32. Abolish interleague play. Let's get it on. I, those are so many of points I like to make, especially that the length of time between expansion, this is the most successful time for baseball in so long, maybe ever, right? It's a, almost a $10 billion industry, and it feels like you know they don't want to rock the boat by adding two more teams. No one wants to risk giving up you know some of that sweet sweet revenue sharing pie or whatever it is but you know meanwhile if you want to expand the footprint of the game which is what they're all about how hard is it to add two teams there's no doubt there's enough talent well that's true and i think that if we even if we take a, a selfish and financial look at it just charge enough just figure out you know your okay revenue sharing you have to contribute and you know fewer teams sharing the pie so what is the cost of defraying that is it $500 million? Is it a billion dollars? There's a number. And so you just figure out the number and you make Bell or, or Carlos Slim, if it's Mexico City, maybe that's a, you know, that's a possibility. Somebody like that kick in as much money as is necessary to defray the cost. And once you do that, everything is just benefit because you are expanding the footprint of the game. You are introducing new elements. So yeah, I, I, there's, there's no charity involved. If, if a team can't exist in Montreal or Mexico or Charlotte or Vegas or Portland, then don't do it. I'm just saying if it's viable, if it seems like a thing to do, then do it. And Montreal is the 15th largest metro market in North America. It's a big city. They once drew. There is a legacy there. Jackie Robinson played professional baseball for the first time in Montreal. This is not some fly-by-night kind of thing. It's a real viable city with like 3 million people in the metro area. If you can get the pieces to fall into place and the numbers are correct, then sure, I think it would be a good business uh, proposition. I say this if I was from uh, Topeka, Kansas as opposed to Montreal. Well, I'm saying this from a biased standpoint because really I am invested in having baseball teams be in places I want to go. Montreal is like one of my favorite places to be. The only thing that really holds it back from being someplace I consider moving is that it doesn't have a baseball team. So for me, uh, from a purely selfish standpoint, I would like there to be baseball in Montreal because I'd like to go hang out in Montreal more often. 
Yeah, well, you would not want to live there between the months of like November and April either. It's also brutally, horribly cold. But yes, you know that there's there's something to that. I mean, look here. Here's a this is just a drop in the bucket, relatively speaking. But we've now had three years where we've had exhibition games in the spring. It's always at the end of March, beginning of April, so it's still cold. There've been snowstorms during these games, uh, and what the, it's been the Blue Jays that have been the home team. They're trying to expand their footprint, so they've played what Cincinnati, uh, the Mets, and the Red Sox so far. And they have these two exhibition games at the same decrepit stadium that has always existed. They've sold out the place. They had 97,000 people for the two games the first two years. And in 2016, they had 107,000 people. They found new seats that didn't exist before, I guess, and completely packed the joint. And all the writers, you talk to the Pittsburgh beat writers and the Boston beat writers, they're out of their minds excited to go to Montreal because it's a cool place. It's different. They used to introduce the players in both languages. There's something to that. And baseball is a wonderful sport no matter what. But I think there's a little bit of an intangible – listen, Milwaukee's a lovely city, but I think there's something that's a little different, Montreal, compared to Milwaukee or Cleveland or even New York City. I think that there's something there, and I think that it adds to the game to have that flavor, to have that international presence. So, so sure, I think all those things are true, and you know, as I said, there is some momentum going on. It's just going to take some time. You can check out Jonah at CBS Sports at SI, uh, again, the host of the Jonah Carey podcast on the Nerdist Network and host of the Jonah Carey show every Friday at 2.30 on CBS Sports. Jonah, thanks so much for doing this. Ted Berg, you are a handsome man, a gentleman, and a scholar. I agree on all counts. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans proudly supports the For the Win podcast. Rocket Mortgage brings the mortgage approval process into the 21st century. Fast, powerful, and completely online, Rocket Mortgage has taken all of the complicated, time-consuming parts of applying for a mortgage out of the equation. Hate searching through stacks of old files and paperwork? With Rocket Mortgage, you can easily share your bank statements and pay stubs at the touch of a button, helping you get approved in minutes for a custom mortgage solution that's been tailored to your unique financial situation. Even better, with Rocket Mortgage, you can do all this on your phone or tablet. It's a quick online process that you can manage from the convenience of your couch. So if you're looking to refinance your mortgage or buy a home, check out Rocket Mortgage today at quickenloans.com slash FTW. That's quickenloans.com slash FTW. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. With that, I'd like to bring on the producer of this show and my friend Hemel Javeri because we're going to do some Q&A. What's up, Hemel? Hey, Ted. How are you? Good. Thanks for uh, coming so swiftly back to the show and not canning me yet as the host. As of three episodes, you are not yet fired. So right. I think you're on a good streak. Let's keep it going. Well, dope. Um, we saw each other in real life last night. You were in New York. That was very exciting. Uh, I need to say that it was it was like quite sad that you had to run out of dinner without having eaten much food. It was actually very frustrating because I felt like I, I don't like leaving places early, and I was very much having, like, FOMO. Like, you, yeah. oh, they're all still going to hang out, and I have to go get on a stupid train. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> and I'm hungry. It was great because then once you left, we were all able to spend the rest of the time making fun of you. I, I figured. I was like, well, as soon as I leave, they're going to, you know, that's the cue to start talking. Actually, the first thing I said when you left was, man, I'm glad we got rid of Hemel. And <laughs> I, I really did say that, but I, was, I, was say, I said it in a joking manner. I said it. Everyone I'm left. sure. And everyone I'm sure left. they all agreed with you. And they all said, yeah, thank God she's gone. Yeah. Now the boys just bro down. Yeah, and we're just going to talk about setting stuff on fire and craft beer and things. I don't know. Stuff and IPAs. Yeah. 
I'm not into the craft. I'm not into the craft beer scene, but I am. So I said that, realizing that I am very much into setting stuff on fire. So that's like a, <laughs> it's like a mixed message I'm putting out that that's not something I would want to talk about when it is 100% something I would want to talk about. You're like, actually, that sounds like a great topic. Right. Also noteworthy, um, you were wearing your TV suit and a tie clip. I was wearing. Yeah, I have the tie clip. Um, so my wife gave me the tie clip, and now I just kind of wear it. For some reason, it seemed like very important to her. I think on one early TV appearance, my tie kept slipping, and she was just <laughs> like, and like I, I assume that means that her dad always wore a tie clip when he wore a tie. Mm-hmm. So she was mm-hmm. like, well, you need a tie clip. Wear this tie clip. So yeah. So now I now I kind of like I don't know. I have the tie clip. I'm not like a big accessory guy, and she knows that about me, but. I have it, and I do kind of need to hold the tie in place, and, you know, maybe it looks it looks hip or funky or something. I, I agree with the tie clip, and I actually think that a tie clip is one of those, like, very adult things that people have in their wardrobe. Like, you're, you're an adult. You have a tie clip. It's weird. I mean, owning yeah. as many, like, because I, for the longest time, I had, like, one suit. That was, like, my standard suit. It was, like, whenever there's an event I need a suit for, the suit comes out, and that's my only suit. And then now, like, now that I do, like, somewhat regularly do TV stuff, I kind of need more suits. So I've uh, slowly picked up my full first. I got married, so that was suit number two. And then, like, you know, like, I've sort of slowly accumulated more suits over the last five to ten years. Now I have, like, four or five suits, and I feel like such a stooge. You're, you got suits, you got tie clips. It's... Yeah, right? I got so many ties. I don't know. I don't know what happened to me. I used to be in a band you came and in stuff. You, yeah, yeah, you sold out. Yeah, I definitely That's awesome. Definitely, definitely sold out. Uh, yeah. And it hurts. But the upside to it is I have a job, and, so, and I, I have people who uh, follow me on Twitter for whatever reason, and we can, when we need... And have some questions to ask yeah, you. Yeah, when we need content, this is a very shaky segue but when we need content for a podcast i can just say who's got questions and then i can give answers it's been a steady thing for me for a while like you can just be it's great actually you can just like when you have i guess when you get to a certain level of twitter followers or or at least engagement of twitter followers you can just be like hey i need this and people will come with it so if it's questions uh if it's like hey i'm in sheboygan wisconsin where's a good place to eat there will be like four people who know and and it's not like i'm like you know ashton kutcher here in terms of twitter followers but there there's always people who know everything because it's the internet it's full of know-it-alls one time i should say before we get to the questions best thing that's ever happened Mm-hmm. Someone from Twitter helped me jump my car. I, my car was dead on on in upper on the Upper East Side, right near where I live in Manhattan. Oh, really? And I put it out. I was like, "Does anyone have jumper ch- cables?" And a dude from Twitter, a perfect stranger, drove over with jumper ch- cables and jumped my car. Incredible! That's right? That's incredible. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So that was dope. So I appreciate it. Is what I'm oh, saying. People are nice. I love that. Um. Well, I mean, some people. Some people, I mean, I, it was like you're taking a chance when you tell the guy where he is, where you are, that he's not going to, like, drive by and egg you and then leave. <laughs> you're wrong about Barry Bonds, you know, and then, yeah. Wait a... <laughs> Always a risk. Um, all right, moving on to questions. Uh... Yeah, do you have... Uh, do, should I... How do you want to do this? Do you, do you want... I can no, throw... no, no. I've got... I, here's the one question that I, I think that I like the most was... Uh, from Stephen A., who has a great Twitter handle, the nimble one. He's talking about the joys of villainy in sports, uh, as in young Grayson Allen. What do you think about that? So, 
okay. So I love for I I love I love villainy in sports. I think that Grayson Allen, it's like a slightly different scenario. I like what I like is like uh Joey Votto, who's the Reds' first baseman, has sort of embraced him his role in opposing stadiums, and Bryce Harper does this too, where they just mm-hmm. mess with the opposing fans, and it's like sort of in a playful mm-hmm. way, like uh, a paper airplane landed on the field, I think at Dodger Stadium, and uh, fans all cheered because the paper airplane landed on the field, and Votto walks over and stomps on it and crumples it up and puts it in his paper, you know, <laughs> and like Harper will almost always do a thing where, you know, if he catches the ball to end the inning, he fakes like he's going to throw it to a fan uh, when he's on the road, and then will just jog back into the dugout with it. Now, if you watch closely, he usually does give it to a fan, like he just waits to do it closer to the to the dugout. He's not being like a total tool yeah. about it. Um, but yeah. I do think, like, I think that if I were a professional athlete, I would absolutely ham up the villain angle. So, so there's a difference though between hamming up the villain angle and kind of actually being like kind of like Grayson Allen who's just like being a petulant little brat mm-hmm. you know there that's the difference there yeah you kind of know that you're playing a role versus being actually you know not cool on the field or, or the court yeah and I'm with you 100% and like I, I kind of I, like for as much as the kid's name is Grayson Allen and he goes to Duke right. and he keeps tripping people, like I'm kind of reluctant to go all in on college kids and be like, oh, why did you do that? Because he's he's a college kid and like the stuff I did in college was just so incomparably dumb, you know, even compared to tripping a guy and then throwing a little hissy fit on the sideline over it. But it wasn't mm-hmm. a, it wasn't a good look, right? It wasn't like not only did he trip the guy, but then he acted as if like, you know, the world was conspiring against him because he yeah. he couldn't control himself to not trip a guy. Um, you know, and maybe he's mad at himself or he's frustrated. I kind of get it just cuz we've all had our own little meltdowns, but man, I mean that Come on, come on! Yeah, right? That's yeah. That was that yeah. was an embarrassing meltdown to have because even if you are a college kid, you're not a twelve. You know what I mean? You're not like a ten year old. I right. feel like even ten is too old for for tantrums like that. Like you're not a four year old who didn't get dessert or or something. If so a that kid was did that, if a kid did that on his t ball team, you'd be like, that kid's acting like a baby. Yeah, exactly. Right? I mean, that's, that's absolutely true. Like, if you saw a t-ball player crying and kicking things and slamming the bench on the, on the, on the, on the bench in the t-ball game, you'd be like, ah, oh, that kid's got to grow up. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with the general premise of, like, embracing villainy in sports, you know, especially when it's, like, theatrical and actually as kind of, play, you know, hammed up and played up. I think that's okay. But you should, you should refrain from having complete and total meltdowns, uh, Grayson Allen style. Right, and and there's a big difference between, you know, like stomping out the beach ball that falls on the field and uh, actually hurting an opponent. You know, it's just, there's yeah. obviously, you know, like one is fun and the other is not fun, right? Yeah, like, yeah, no, in hockey, you know, there's a fine line between kind of being a pest on the ice and, and making sure um, – that you kind of give players a hard time versus like actually, you know, checking somebody head first into the boards. Like, um, what's his name from the Anaheim Ducks? Ryan Perry, right? Has the reputation of being a huge pest, but he never crosses that line into dirty player. Like he, he kind of plays up the villainy aspect. Um, 
but you definitely don't want to be in a position where guys are getting concussions. Right. I mean, and especially I'm in in all of the sports, really, probably, I guess, basketball, the, the least of all, really. But there's such great potential for physical injury, obviously, in, in hockey yeah. and football, first and foremost. But, you know, in baseball for pitchers as well, like you could kill a guy with a fastball if it was placed <laughs> in there. You could. You could. Right. So, yeah. like, you know, you, you yeah. don't you can be you can be a pitcher who you can be like Noah Syndergaard. Right. And say, like, yeah. I'm going to throw the ball over the over the guy's head and then say, if he wants to fight me, I'm 60 feet, six inches away. That's very different than actually hitting the guy in the head with the ball. Yeah, I agree with that. It's um not a good look. Nuance. This is all there's nuance. It's cool to be a villain, but it's not cool to be like an actual villain. <laughs> right? I agree with you with that. I agree with you with that. Um, I actually think that... So I think I got what's his... I'm not talking... I got like all my, my Anaheim Ducks like mixed up and I combined Ryan Getzlaff and Corey Perry. Corey Perry who is, is who I'm talking about with the Anaheim Ducks, not Ryan Getzlaff. You had me sold. I thought I believed you 100%. I don't... <laughs> I'm at, yeah, I was going to say, I guess I was like, well, Ted didn't pick up on it, but I don't think Ted actually is that into the Anaheim Ducks roster. <laughs> I'm not... I, don't, I know like... I, I think hockey is a cool sport. Um, I know like seven hockey guys right now. Like if you want guys who played in 1994, I could give you like 50 of them. But right now, no. We can save that for, for next time around. The Q&A um, is like how many hockey guys from 1994 can you name? Well, well, that's next next week's podcast. Yeah. Like great idea. <laughs> like Benoit Hogue, Pat LaFontaine. Uh-huh. All right. They're all, um, they'd all be Islanders also. Uh-huh. Sorry, do you want to do this chopped cheese business right now? Yes, or do you I, want to do. Do that? I do. I do, because okay. this is a really interesting question. So, you know, when we poll people for questions, we get a lot of food questions, and I get that. Well, when I do. you, I, I doubt you would. Um, I, I get no food questions at all. Although I should say, and because you have said you know, you feel about food the way I feel about clothes, but you do have a very advanced Taco Bell order. I do. I have a very specific Taco Bell order that comes with – that comes from – like having all these dietary restrictions, yeah. Um, well, also, I know I know how I like my Taco Bell. No, that's totally fair, and and I was rather impressed the time <laughs> we went to Taco Bell. Uh, this is a question from uh, Reno Wallabout, which is uh, I don't know that that's his real name. Maybe it is. Um, that's his Twitter handle at least, and and his name on his Twitter bio, uh, which just says, "Can we get a ruling on this chopped cheese business?" I'm assuming, Hamill, you don't know much about the chopped cheese business. I don't know anything about it, so I need a condensed but detailed explanation. Okay, so it is, it's complicated. And mm-hmm. I should say that, like, I am, I think, a, a guilty party in some fashions in to, to some uh, corners of this chopped cheese business, so... I can't help but be biased, and I'm trying not, you know, I'm trying not to be, and trying to see uh, certainly both sides as best as I can. Well, so the chopped cheese is a sandwich, and it is mm-hmm. um, essentially it is just a hamburger, a cheeseburger, all chopped up uh, and spread out over like a hero roll with you know whatever toppings you want: uh, ketchup, mayo, mm-hmm. uh, lettuce, and lettuce and tomato, whatever. Um, it is a sandwich 
associated with bodegas, which uh, in New York City is like a, a big part of the sort of street food scene, right? Basically, every corner has a bodega, um, and many of these bodegas have grills where they'll cook your food, they'll make your eggs. Um, bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich is another bodega staple, very good. Um, this is sort of a lesser known, or I shouldn't say lesser known, because that's part of what's of what the issue is, right? Is that in I think in some neighborhoods, the chopped cheese, and, and among some people, the chopped cheese is a very popular, very well-known. And among other mm-hmm. people, myself included, it wasn't very well-known until somewhat recently, right? And so I found it, and, and I wrote about it on, on For the Win, um, and which is why I think I am sort of in, guilty of, of helping popularize or at least, uh, you know, spread the tale of the chopped cheese sandwich, which is very good. You're, you're gentr- you helped gentrify the chopped cheese. And that's what's, and that's sort of the, that's the root of the controversy here is right. Is like people, um, people who had not heard of, and it's not like I've never been to a bodega before and I just stumbled into one and found the chopped cheese. I had seen it on menus before and just not knowing what it was and never Mm -hmm. bothered to order it thinking it was going to be chopped up cheese. That doesn't appeal to me. If I knew it was a (laughs) cheeseburger, I'd have been all in from like, you know, 1999 on that. Right. But, uh, but no, I wasn't. So, you know, I will freely admit I had never heard of this sandwich until uh, a first or I, or I never I was never familiar with what was on it until a, a an awesome feature about it by the site firstwefeast.com, which is a very good uh, sort of food blog site. And mm-hmm. I have since eaten many of them. As it turns out, the place credited with inventing them is is like about 15 blocks from my apartment. So, a very quick bike trip for me. Um, and so I've, I've had plenty. They're delicious. And as such, I've written about them. But uh, people who sort of feel like it's like almost like that, that who feel like they have the the claim to first discoverers or, or feasters of chopped cheese sandwiches uh, – say this has been columbus right which is which means like you know now people are acting like they've discovered something that has long existed and yep. the whole thing was made worse because the columbus circle whole foods which has a sta- you know and whole columbus circle is a is a, a traffic circle in new york city there's a whole foods there um they have a permanent food stand called 1492 in tribute to columbus because it's columbus circle but that stand for a while was serving chopped cheese sandwiches um like high-end organic chopped cheese sandwiches and this has become a thing it's it's coming up on menus now downtown uh fancy restaurants are serving their version of this sandwich and for I think understandable reasons, people who have been buying chopped cheese sandwiches at bodegas for 25 years for 350 are a little bit, uh, or very bit, you know, angered by the fact that that exists. And I, I go on. Go ahead. No, you no, talk. No, go ahead. You talk because I, I'm, I'm. Look, I'm a, I'm a white guy from the suburbs who, with a graduate degree, who discovered this sandwich <laughs> three years ago and was like, "Oh yeah, everybody check this sandwich out." I never knew You're about like, it, oh, right? So I'm the guilt. Awesome. I'm the guilty party here, you know. Yeah, I, I think that this is so. Speaking as like again, not a food person, but speaking as somebody who is not a white guy who is eating, You're you know, not a white guy. Like, no, yeah, not a white guy eating culturally appropriated food. I will say that this chopped cheese business um, is exactly what is really frustrating about 
a is not even just about New York, but about like the whole food scene in general is like food people grab onto something that people have been eating for like decades and they turn it into like a new thing. And that's what bugs me about chopped cheese. So like Indian people have something called ghee. It's called it's G-H-E-E and it's like clarified butter. I know all about ghee because I'm one of these people appropriating your your cultural yes. butter. Yeah. Like this it's delicious. So this is this is like <laughs> ghee is like something that's like a staple for like centuries in India. And then all of a sudden like Gwyneth Paltrow writes about it on Goop or something and they're selling it for like $80 a jar at, at, you know, like organic boutique food places, which is complete BS. So yeah, I agree that the chopped cheese business is just capitalism appropriating, um, like cultural food trends. That's messed up. And, and okay. And like, I hear that and I'm trying to be like as woke as I can possibly be. (laughs) But my thing, especially with food is like, I don't really think there's any such thing as like culturally authentic food, because if you date it back far enough, like I've had people say, um, well, you shouldn't eat that burrito with lettuce inside it because really burritos were created for people who were going out to work in the fields and they never would have had lettuce in it because the lettuce would have wilted. So, you know, you're screwing up that authentic burrito by adding lettuce. But my thing is, well, the lettuce in there is good and it's still (laughs) authentically food, right? So like, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not a, a Mexican guy working in the fields in in the early 20th century when the burrito was created, right? But I am a hungry guy who likes meat wrapped up in tortilla with some rice and salsa and and hopefully guacamole in there, unless they're charging you too much. Which they well, do. here's okay. So here's my thing with that. Here, I I don't disagree with that point, but I'm saying that like what is so what upsets people so much about this chopped chopped cheese sandwich is that then people turn it into like a status symbol as mm. like 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 a kind of like commodity fetishism of like taking it as and taking it and turning it into this whole other thing of like uh, oh look you know here I am eating like organic uh, ghee butter that you know I spread on my bagels or well, whatever yeah. it is and there's like a there's an exoticism about it that yeah. does sort of like rankle me too like what what yeah. like you're you're acting like I yeah. mean like especially in something like the case of the chopped cheese where you're acting like it's this like whoa, this, like, super secret delicacy that you didn't know about. Well, meanwhile, it's, like like I said, it's 15 blocks away from me, and it's been there for 20 years, and it costs exactly. 350 It's been available. Exactly, exactly. So it is very, um, it's not so much about, like, not eating foods from other cultures. Like, I, I agree with you that, like, you can put whatever you want in the burrito because it's going to taste really good, or you can, we had this conversation yesterday about Indian food. Like, even Indian food in America is different than, like, actual Indian food. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not against that stuff. I'm against people kind of taking the chopped cheese and the ghee and then turning it into like, look at how cool and fancy I am. Cause I can eat this and look at what I just discovered. Okay. And like, I buy that, but like at the same, as, on the same or the, on the opposite side is like, as someone who reviews sandwiches, right? It's like, well, I think this is an interesting sandwich that honestly I know a lot of people don't know about, you know, especially outside of New York, right? So I feel like I want to help spread the word. You know, I wouldn't, I think it's ridiculous for Whole Foods to be charging $8 for it, but I always kind of feel like that's the case when things get, like when foods become the it thing, right? Like now it's, now it's red velvet and everybody's got red velvet and red velvet everything. And we're, you know, and like, that's a, that's going to 
have its minute. Um, not that the chopped cheese is, is ever going to get to the pervasiveness which with which red velvet cupcakes have. But the, the, the thing about that is that I, I also do really enjoy red velvet cupcakes, and I'm happy <laughs> about the fact that they're available to me now everywhere, and I can have red velvet things everywhere. But um, And I guess the, to me, like the sort of the, the thing before it, or the... the underlying part of it is like the chopped cheese sandwich. Now, no one knows exactly where it comes from, but people Mm -hmm. think that the reason it exists is because a lot of the bodegas, especially up in East Harlem, which is uh, like sort of right near where I live and and right where the sandwiches were were supposedly come from, uh, the bodegas are owned by guys from Yemen. And in Yemen, mm-hmm. uh, they chop up just about everything, right? And so um, people think that, that this is where the sandwich came from, is that Yemeni guys who were working the grills were just started chopping up burgers because that, they chop up food. Um, because that's how, yeah. And there's so, always, like, that and is the, the interesting part about this stuff, is, like, there's the cultural reasons and the economic reasons for people eating the food that they do is always, like, completely stripped away when you know, it becomes gentrified and Whole Foods starts selling it for like way more money than it's worth. Well, yeah, but like, but, but I'm saying like there's an exchange there, right? Like just like right. a, a bon me would never exist without like hundreds of years of horrible things that happened in Vietnam, right? Like if, if French people weren't colonializing Vietnam, there's no way French bread gets there and there's right. no way that, you know, 150 years later, I'm enjoying this incredible sandwich, right? And like that's unfortunate, but at the same time, I feel like the food itself should be like a universal thing that everybody gets to enjoy. And like to me, and, and again, I say this as someone who is on the wrong side of speaking of cultural <laughs> appropriation. Like, I just am. There's just – I can't have this conversation without acknowledging that because I would sound ridiculous. But, like, I just feel like I want to be able to eat everything and anywhere and enjoy it. And, like, I, that no one – that you can have – obviously, obviously, people have claims to a culture and to and to everything else. And, like, it shouldn't be stripped from you, but, like, I'm going to – if this is a delicious sandwich, I'm gonna I'm gonna eat the sandwich, and I'm gonna listen. No one, you no know, one is saying you can't. No one is saying you can't eat the sandwich. That's not the point, though, Ted. The point is that it becomes like it becomes problematic when it becomes like co-opted as like a thing that Whole Foods when Whole invented. Foods is, yeah. Okay. You and know, I buy I that. And like. And yeah. yeah. Okay, and and Whole Foods is now profiting off this off this thing. Exactly, they're like profiting, and it becomes a trend that like, oh, this thing didn't even exist until it was discovered by by me, you know, white corporate people, yeah. and that figured out they could charge a whole bunch of money for it. Uh, all right, um, I mean, no, I buy that, I buy that, and and I'm cool with that. And you know what? I'm not gonna eat. I'm not gonna get chopped cheese at Whole Foods unless I'm like there you go. Unless that's... I'm super hungry and in the Whole Foods, and that's the best thing that's available to me. Which case I might. And but then, for the most part, I'm gonna go to the same place I've gone and go eat the chopped cheese at that place. True. And even if you do go to Whole Foods and buy it, you'll eat it with a little bit of like self-loathing and guilt. Oh, one hundred percent. <laughs> but I feel that um, I, I mean I feel that way about any like there's so many different foods that have become have get like the fancy pants treatment like I, I've had the fancy like there's so many places in New York where you can get like the thirty five dollar extra fancy foie gras burger and I've eaten yeah. them a few times and I feel like a derp every time I do because it's like why 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 there's a ten dollar burger that is way better than this and it's not coming from these idiots who decide to serve me a thirty five dollar burger. That's true. Um, all right, moving on to a different question, but sticking with uh, the food theme and adding a bit of a holiday theme. 
it took me a while to get the username. Brian needs a nap. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, wait, what is that? So Brian needs a nap wants to know about eggnog. Disgusting or delightful? Okay. Do you have a take? I think it's, I have, I will say that I have never actually really tried eggnog, except it sounds utterly disgusting. I would say that you're probably okay for not having tried eggnog because <laughs> eggnog, I'm going to say like 90% of the time, maybe 80% of the time, eggnog is completely disgusting. And like, mm. I don't know what makes good eggnog. I know that like a total of five times in my 35 years on this earth, I've had eggnog and been like, whoa, that's pretty good. Um, and the rest of the time, every taste of eggnog I've ever had has been completely disgusting. There's, like, an aftertaste. I feel like the difference is, like, if it's homemade eggnog, it might be good, but the store-bought eggnog has this, like, weird, sort of, like, almost, like, minty aftertaste to it that I can't really describe, but it's just gross. It's just a gross thing. Um, Yeah. I'm not going to fight you on that because every time I've even come close to having it touch my lips, I'm like, no, I can't, I can't even swallow this. No. Yeah. And, and like, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't love like, I guess that's not, I was going to say, I don't love like boozy milk drinks, but like, I actually <laughs> do kind of like a white Russian, you know? So, um, so that's not the right thing to say, but uh, it's just, it's just like just adding rum to this or whatever you're going to do to make it alcoholic or whiskey or whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what booze you put in eggnog because, like, you can have eggnog, uh, like, obviously with or without alcohol. Um, That's not enough for me. Like, oh, it's a milk. I would rather have, I would rather have, like, a glass of milk and a shot of whiskey than (laughs) a shot of whiskey in a glass of milk. Yeah, if you want to get drunk, there's other ways to do it than subjecting yourself to eggnog. Yeah, and I feel that way about, like, so many different like like i'm not into hot booze that much which is like a thing you know like like oh yeah we talked about this mulled wine thing i mm. liked mulled wine it's good it's tasty i don't know i i'm not into i'm not that into hot beverages in general like i think like a hot buttered rum once a year is kind of good because it's like super Mm -hmm. sweet and like candy that gets you drunk and that's great but uh no i'm not i'm not a I, i would like i like refreshing i want i turn to drinks for refreshment i turn to drinks for i i actually like hot like like to me the baileys is almost perfect because you can sip it you're not really going to get drunk but it might give you just a bit of a buzz um okay and i buy that and that's nice like a little after after dinner you're trying to continue the conversation with these people you've run out of things to say you you (laughs) tie one on because it's like a social lubricant at this point that's that's all you have is you're clinging to that glass of of baileys or mulled wine yeah um so the last question from dan i can't dan i'm i'm gonna butcher your last hefaili hefaili yeah um why don't you go first? Dan wants to know. He has a bunch of questions, but today questions. we're going to stick yeah. with the holiday theme. Um, and he wants to know your favorite holiday tradition, which I think is a great question. I want to know that too. Um, do we think he's talking about like my own personal holiday question or holiday tradition or just general holiday traditions? No, I think he wants to know about your favorite holiday tradition. All right. Well, uh, um... oh, you mean like a generic no, tradition I... that? No, I would no. hope I would hope he means personal because my my best no, one is no, personal. He... Um, and this is like I'm almost reluctant to share this because it's like still happening. I'm like I, I don't oh. know. Um, 
Okay, but so my family, we have always like from when I was a, a kid uh, on Christmas Eve, we we always have gone have done Christmas Eve or traditionally we always did Christmas Eve with my dad's family and Christmas mm-hmm. Day with my mom's family. Now uh, my wife and I tend to spend Christmas Eve with my family and uh, Christmas Day with her family, and mm-hmm. part of that is because well, there's two. Okay, there's two. And this year, this one's not happening. And this one I actually started. It's all, all has to do with Christmas Eve. Um, and I don't remember starting this tradition, but I believe it because my friends tell me I did. Um, it, every day, every Christmas Eve, uh, that falls on a weekday. So it's not happening this year. Uh, several people from my high school jazz band, myself included, and like across eras of like people from my sister's class who's older than me, people from my brother's class who's way older than me, and then kids who have just graduated, um, whoever's, basically whoever's around uh, goes and stands outside of the train station in town, and we play Christmas carols in the morning while people are like commuting into town, and we raise money for charity to do it, Uh, and it's, I think it's nice for the people, there's also a bakery that's super popular on that block, so there's a huge line out the door on the bakery, and those people get to hear our terrible renditions of Christmas versions of Christmas carols and and holiday songs and then the people getting on the train also get to hear them and and uh I don't know if it's pleasant for them because you know like for me it's like this is the second time I've picked up a trombone all year um but it's fun for us because I get to see all these people I haven't seen for a long time and play music which is not something I get to do a lot in public and just sort of like spread Christmas spirit um which I enjoy um, so that one, I'm, awesome. that one I'm happy to publicize because it'd be cool if people came out. If you happen to be in Rockville Center, New York, yeah. next next Christmas Eve um, on a weekday, if it's if it falls on a weekday, this year we're not doing it because it's it's Saturday. There's not going to be anybody commuting, uh, and the weekend means a lot more people. Specifically, the guy who has the music is <laughs> is uh, is going to be out of town. Um, and then the other thing yeah, is, there's is a couple of things standing in the way. Um, is Christmas Eve, we always traditionally, my family, for whatever, I mean, I know why, but um, we used to, like, my mom would always be preparing food and, and, and preparing, wrapping gifts and all those things, and so mm-hmm. uh, my dad would always take, my sister and my brother and I, we would, we used to always have lobster on Christmas Eve. Um, mm-hmm. It was like those sort of like the, you know, I don't know, it was like a one time of the year we had lobster, so we'd go down to uh, my future employer, Jordan Lobster Farm, and buy lobsters, which was like a fun scene for little kids because it's all live yeah. lobsters in big tanks. And then um, because my dad was trying to keep us out of the house so my mom could could wrap gifts and everything, uh, we would go to Nathan's, which is a hot dog chain in New York, but also the specific Nathan's, uh, which is now closed, uh, had a big game room attached to it and oh, so, wow. we, so we would like christmas eve was like we'd go we'd go to jordan's we'd get lobsters and then we'd go to nathan's and we'd play video games uh so like it was like as a distraction for us while my mom got everything done um now we don't go to jordan's anymore uh and the nathan's is no longer the one with the game room is no longer there but we still like the going to nathan's for lunch on christmas eve has maintained as a tradition which is fun that is very very sweet um, those what are both very good traditions. Uh, so our traditions are actually really recent because, so background, as a child of immigrants, uh, my parents were really bad at Christmas, right? They just had no idea because they're not Christian. They did not grow up in America. Um, and Indian people, like there's Indian Christians that celebrate Christmas, but obviously it's not as huge of a deal there as it is in America. 
So growing up, we never really had a lot of Christmas traditions. Like, there, I mean, but there were plenty of holidays you, you do celebrate. It doesn't have to be a Christmas oh, there, tradition. You could just say any holiday tradition. Well, it's true, but I'm sticking with kind of the Christmas theme because we we have like we've made up for the fact that like when we were kids, we never really did stuff like that. Um, even we would have to like it was like pulling teeth to be like, Mom, we got to get a tree. Like Americans get trees on Christmas. Like let's go, um, which was fun, but it was still like fun for us as kids. Oh yeah. Uh, we so recently we have started like my sister and I live together and we have a house and we started I would say for the past this is the third year in a row that we've gotten a live Christmas tree which we like I didn't grow up with that right so it's like been awesome and fun like when we don't go any place special to get the tree we like go to Home Depot but that whole process of like getting an actual live tree and then setting it up um and like doing the lights and the ornaments and stuff like that which is just a thing that we we didn't really do it as kids um but we've really started doing now as adults and i love it like that's probably my favorite holiday tradition um that's and then i think that's funny because that's like something that's something i kind of take for like uh, like for me have having had a tree my whole life it's like we need to have a tree I gotta get a tree. Right? Oh, I gotta put the lights on it. Oh God, I gotta put ornaments on. It's so festive. It was, it was very when we were kids. It was just really sporadic because we like we moved around a lot and like we never knew like with the tree was coming with us because we were moving around so much. Mm-hmm. Um, and every now and then we would have like a plastic tree and we would do the ornaments and stuff like that. But like actually committing to getting. The real live tree has been super fun and I, you know, I will bitch about it and I'll still be like, oh my God, I got to get the tree. There's going to be pine needles all over the floor. Um, But, you know, we have people over, we decorate, we drink tea and cider and have something like stupid playing on TV. Um, And it's probably one of the rare times I feel like where, you know, it's like probably takes about what, two hours to do the tree, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit less. Um, and nobody's really like looking at their phones and everybody's just like hanging out and talking. So it's fun. Uh, that is fun. And and I like having the tree in the house because it smells so nice. It does. It smells great. So, yeah. um, well, that's, right. that's, well, that's, that's a good holiday. Yeah. And it's a good, it's good to be a pre from a different standpoint to appreciate the Christmas tree, which is just like a sort of a staple for me. Cause it's just I know I, it feels like it's a really boring holiday tradition. No, but like, it's nice. Cool. I'm so. for it. I'm for it. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's so that this we can we can end there, right? Because yeah. it's uh, it's we've already gone way longer than we said we would, um, which is good though. I think I hope people listen. Maybe we you had we had an interesting conversation. If not, if no one's listening, at least I I we had an, I had a nice conversation. It was nice talking. To if, you. Yeah. If if anybody does make it to the end of this this podcast, you can tweet us your favorite holiday traditions. <laughs> Definitely. Or or even better yet, subscribe. Or rate us and review us on iTunes. Um, it's been a while since we've had a new review on this show, and it would be nice to get one again from someone who is not clearly a member of Nate's family. So, <laughs> um, so that would be cool. Uh, you could also check it out on SoundCloud. Uh, subscribe there as well. We're on Stitcher. Uh, obviously, uh, we are. It's the For the Win podcast, so you can find it at For the Win. Uh, for the win.usla.com, ftw.usla.com, uh, and uh, both of us write lots of stuff there, and there will be more podcasts to come in the coming weeks. All right. Uh, Thanks, Dad. 
Thank you, Hamel, and uh, peace out.